Well, thank you, Jerry, singers, band. Uh, we've just been led into a wonderful little season of acknowledging the greatness and the goodness of God and how indebted we are to Him and being able to express our heart in thankful kinds of ways. I hope you've been able to take advantage of every moment, every note, every second uh, that we've had to be able to do that. We are in a series of talks uh, that I'm calling Praying Like Children. And the idea is that in childlike fashion, where children can still be awed by God and by, by big things, where children can still be surprised, where their joy has not been inhibited by cynicism and um, skepticism, things like that, that we, like children, would approach God, experience God, enjoy God. Um, be able to worship God, give thanks to God, etc. So that's where we are. And uh, we've been basing that upon this prayer that uh, several of you had learned as a child. God is great. And we spent an entire day talking about that. God is good. We spent last week talking about that. Let us thank him is where we are today. In a moment, I'm going to be reading from the book of Revelation, the third chapter. So you want to grab your Bible Open it up to the very last book of the Bible and look at chapter 3. We'll read some together there in just a moment. Before we do, uh, I just thought I would visit one of my favorite subjects. We talked about this a little bit last week. Um, anybody know what uh, that is in reference to? Donuts again? Yes. Um, I, I'm just curious, and I gave you a little sampling last week if you were not here I'm so sorry. Uh, but we gave away literally dozens of Krispy Kreme donuts last week because, uh, in my humble estimation, they are the best donut on the planet. Um, now, the thing about Krispy Kreme is it's not like this big monster donut. It's kind of small, really. Um, and it is absolutely loaded with everything that your body should not have, probably. Uh, and when they are, uh, is there a better sign in the world than the Krispy Kreme sign. You know what I'm talking about? Because when it glows and it says what? Hot now. That means you can pull in there and it's just coming right off the rack. Oh my goodness. I, I just worship God. Celebrate Him every time I can pull in when it's hot now. Now, um, I, I have James Appleby to thank for that. Because uh, I had never heard of Krispy Kreme until around 1990 or 91. I forget exactly when it was, but uh, we were in Atlanta for a conference and he introduced me to Krispy Kreme. And I have been forever grateful ever since. Well, Marilyn was there, too. <laughs> She's like, well, I don't know. Um, did you actually have a donut with us? I don't recall. Maybe. Okay. Oh, I'm not going to repeat what you said. So uh, the thing is that you may not know. Who knows how long Krispy Kremes have been around? This is going somewhere, so just play. You, you did not know they were founded in 1937. That's even older than me. So a long time ago, a guy by the name of Rudolph began to develop this little recipe that has become known as what we call Krispy Kreme. Who knows where they come from? Where did Kristen Thompson go? Where? 
Oh, what a guess. <laughs> and where in North Carolina? Winston-Salem, North Carolina. That was the first one. You were so close. And here's the deal. How, how were they first distributed? They, they were distributed... <laughs> In stores, they didn't have their own little shop, and so you'd go down to the grocery store, and uh, uh, they would make them over at the Krispy Kreme place, and then they would deliver them to a bunch of stores. You could go to the store and get it, but guess what happened? Along the way, as uh, the reputation began to spread by word of mouth, uh, people would be walking past the Krispy Kreme place that they were making them, and they would just be slayed by the smells. And by the sensation of what that Krispy Kreme donut was going to be like. And so they literally cut a hole in the wall of this building. And they began to sell them directly out the hole in the wall to people that were like, can I get one before you take them to the store? And that's when they began to get them hot. Mm, Yes. And so uh, not only were they um, kind of on the cutting edge of having people come to the shop directly and get them hot. But there were a number of other innovations. As they began to open store after store after store across the southeast to begin with, um, everybody used the same recipe, but somehow the quality wasn't exactly the same place to place to place. And so they began uh, a number of innovations where they standardized everything, not just the recipe, but how things would be uh, produced from beginning to end. So that every Krispy Kreme then used the same machines and the same mechanism and the same standardization. And anywhere that you went, you would get the same product. Are you getting excited? (laughs) And not only that, now it's international. You can go to Krispy Kreme in Canada, in Mexico, in England, in Australia, in the Middle East, for crying out loud, in Turkey. Uh, And so it's a good day (laughs) for Krispy Kreme. Now, you're going, Scott, what in the world are you talking about? Really, that kind of stuff doesn't matter very much. All that background stuff, here's what matters. And I'm holding here a bag of deliciousness. And right here is where it's at. Forget... When it was founded, where it was founded, what kind of stores, how international, what in, forget it all. This is it. And what this is designed for is this. Somebody put a napkin on there. I did. So, give me a moment. God is good. God is great. Who has never, ever had a Krispy Kreme? Who who is surprised? And you are in church. You do have to tell the truth. Everybody's had one, right? Somebody never had one? You've never had one? That's clever. I've got one left for you. Now, recommendation. You guys can eat it now if you want. Or you can give it to him. My recommendation, of course, 
is that you heat it just a little bit in the microwave. Because Krispy Kremes are designed to be eaten hot. Thus the sign. Okay? You didn't know all this. But uh, you can have them just like they are right now. And they're pretty good. But they're kind of like every other donut at that point. But if you have it hot, Mama, you don't even need the teeth. You know, they just kind of melt and dissolve. And so if I take them home and they're no longer hot, they go in the microwave for about eight seconds. And then you take it out. and just mm. Okay. What in the world is that all about? Friends, we can talk about God, the Bible, Israeli history, geography, mountains, cities, rivers, temples, synagogues, teachers, prophets, blah, 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 blah. And it really doesn't matter very much. Because what all that points toward is whether or not you have ever tasted God. And friend, if you have never tasted God, the psalmist said, taste and see that the Lord is good. If you've never tasted the Lord, experienced the Lord, then friends, all you've got is some data. All you've got some information. All you've got some facts. And that can be interesting, depending on who you are and what interests you. But the whole point, the whole point is to taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, there are things that get in the way of that. Jesus told us that your heart is like soil that is receiving seed that has been sown by a sower. And some people have hard hearts. Some people have kind of rocky, uh, crazy kind of soil of a heart. Some people have thorny. That is to say, all kinds of thorns and thistles grow up with whatever has been sown there. And in Luke chapter 8, verse 7, he says, Some of that seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up. And choked it. The point being, you can even taste God a little bit. You can begin to experience Him a little bit. But if you've got a bunch of other junk in your heart, it will choke it out. And so when we're praying, God is great, God is good. I get that some of the time, but not all the time. Let us thank Him. We're not going to be moved very much with excitement, with delight, with pleasure, with passion, with fire. If stuff's constantly choking the greatness and the goodness of God out of our hearts. Stuff like what? Well, stuff like your money concerns, your health concerns, your relationship concerns, your career and vocation concerns, whatever it is, whatever you begin to elevate and make really, really important. Maybe it's that relationship with that guy or that gal or that kid or whatever. When something becomes greater than God to you in its importance, in its focus, that begins to choke out the greatness and goodness of God in you. 
And so what we're doing in these next few moments is we're reminding ourselves of his greatness. We're reminding ourselves of his goodness for the whole purpose of tasting him and seeing that he is good. And so I'm going to take us back out as we did a couple of weeks ago, because the psalmist said in Psalm 19, one, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky proclaims his handiwork. The psalmist said in 33, six, by the word of the Lord. The heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. Now, Genesis 1-1 goes on to say, God just simply spoke and said, let there be, and boom, there it was. Let there be light. Boom, there it was. How glorious, how powerful, how mighty, how awesomely creative. Now, last time we were reflecting on these things, we just stuck around in our own neighborhood. And we talked about some stuff in the Milky Way galaxy. This time, I'm going to take us down the street just just for a few minutes. And we're going to go to the the next galaxy over. And that's the Whirlpool galaxy. Now, the Whirlpool galaxy is a little bit bigger than the Milky Way galaxy. If you recall, I uh, made mention of the fact that in the Milky Way galaxy, there's around 200 billion Stars, like our sun. Now, in the Whirlpool galaxy, there's 300 billion stars. And all those little red dots that you see all over uh, that swirling uh, look, those are stars. And many that you can't see from that photograph. 300 billion. And they continue to be created. They continue to be forming and to be developing. Now, this galaxy is about 31 million light years from Earth. So if you wanted to you know, get in the spaceship and go over to that galaxy, remember what we said, a light year is how far light travels in a year. And light moves at 186,000 miles per second. How far does that light move in a year? Well, it moves 5.88 trillion miles. In other words, if you wanted to get in that spaceship and go from Earth to the Whirlpool galaxy, you'd have to go at the speed of light, 5.88 trillion miles in 31 million years. Take 31 million years to get there. Do you begin to get how big? Now, this is two galaxies we talked about, Milky Way and Whirlpool. There are billions of galaxies. Do you begin to just conceive a little bit about how big this universe is? How small our solar system, how small our planet, how small our lives are in the big created universe of our God. This is why we get so moved with his goodness. Because out of all that bigness, he can pay attention to you and to me. Let's come back home, back into the Milky Way back into our own solar system. Here's our sun. Pretty hot looking. Just 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Can you... This makes my head explode. I've already told you that. Just trying to imagine 
that kind of temperature, it's 93 million miles from the Earth, which means light traveling at the speed of light takes eight minutes to get from the sun to your skin. Unless you live in Seattle. It takes another nine months at that point. But for the rest of the United States and the world, it takes about eight minutes for that ray of light to get from the sun to your skin. There are a million, the, the sun is a million times bigger than the earth. Now, I need visual help for that. Two young ladies looking like they want to volunteer. Would you come up here with me for just a minute? All right. Yes, you will. All right, Kara, would you stand right here? Right there. Jackie, would you stand right over here? Right there. Okay. The distance between Kara and Jackie is 15 feet. Imagine that is the diameter of the sun. Okay, so imagine, you know, a big circle, which they represent the diameter of. This is Earth. It takes 960,000 of these to fill up the circumference that is our sun. Is that amazing? Thank you. You guys can go back to sleep or whatever. (laughs) No, they're they're the best in the house, actually. Um, What's the point in all that? The point, friends, is this. God is big. God is great. God is awesome. And in all of that, God is good. But we tend to diminish that because of our own sinfulness. When we are operating with greed, pride, lust, sloth, envy, jealousy, God, in our estimation, just gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And meanwhile, we get bigger and bigger and bigger. And worship is all about making much of God and little of us. And sin is about the opposite. Makes much of us and little of God. We're reminding ourselves in this moment how great He is. Not only out there in the cosmos, in the universe, in all of the planets, and all of the stars, and all of the galaxies, but right here where he begins to breathe life into soul after soul after soul. Psalm 139.13 tells us that God formed us. And he formed us from the inside, our inward parts. The psalmist said, you knitted me together in my mother's womb, and I am fearfully and wonderfully made. We talked about it a lot last week. I'm just going to remind us. That life that you hold, that, that is your own, all that began with one cell from dad and one cell from mom. And as they came together and formed one cell that is you, that one cell contained DNA from both parents that came together and formed a unique, one-of-a-kind, never-to-be-duplicated-and-repeated DNA. And that DNA that is in your one cell has Three billion characters 
in that code. Makes my head explode. Three billion characters in the code that makes up who you're going to become. That's in that one cell that was originally you. And that code is something of a blueprint, something of a plan of what you are going to become, what your body and your life are going to become. And eventually you will have 75 trillion cells after multiplication, 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 multiplication. All of that containing the same DNA code, all of that working together. You are a miracle. This galaxy is a miracle. Your life is a miracle. God is great. Now, when you start thinking about 75 trillion cells, and 50,000 of which die and go away every four seconds, and another 50,000 are generated to replace them every four seconds, I think Augustine had it right when he said about us, men go abroad to wonder at the heights of mountains, at the huge waves of the sea, at the long courses of the rivers, at the vast compass of the ocean, at the circular motions of the stars, and they pass by themselves without wondering. I mean, if you just want to reflect on the greatness of God, just think about your own life. Remarkable. Now, something that Louis Giglio has made a lot of us aware of is this. These 75 trillion cells that are just like all over you. I mean, what a mess that would be unless they were all connected. Unless they were all held together in some kind of way. And they are. There's a thing called laminin. It's a protein molecule that holds cells together and there are literally millions of laminin protein molecules in your body holding those trillions of cells together. And you know what that laminin looks like? It looks like the cross of Christ. To see it under the microscope, you see it there. And you can't help when you look at something like that and reflect on something like that to go to the scriptures where we are reminded in Colossians chapter 1 verse 16. It's by him, it's by Jesus that all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created through him and for him and in him all things hold together. He holds this universe together. He causes all of these orbital patterns to function the way that they do. He's, he's caused your life and, and the structure of all the cells that are within you to happen as they do. And he holds all that together. And you can literally say that he holds it all together by the cross. He is not only the star breather, just speaking it all into creation, but he is also the sin bearer who redeems us back from our snubbing his greatness, from our ignoring his greatness, from our rebelling against his greatness. He redeems us back from that. 
and holds us together. Some of you came in the door today feeling like you're falling apart. Where do you need Him to hold you together? It's a specialty. He'll do that in you today. Now with all of this that is so stunning, somehow we can become bored with God. The things of God. The Word of God. The plans, purposes of God. We can become, as the Scriptures refer to it, as lukewarm. And I want us to take just a moment to read the text from which that descriptor comes. It's in Revelation chapter 3. And this is the time where Jesus is addressing churches. And in chapter 3, beginning with verse 14, he addresses a church in a place called Laodicea. And notice, beginning with verse 14, he says to that messenger of the church in Laodicea, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation, he says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, why are they lukewarm? Why are they neither hot nor cold? He says, it's because you say, I'm rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, friend, the church in Laodicea that was around 2,000 years ago, I don't know that it could be a better description of the church in America. Richest nation on the planet for which we're grateful, for which we're grateful for the price that's been paid for that. We've already, you know, remembered that today. But the fact of the matter is, the Laodiceans became forgetful about the greatness and goodness of God because of their prosperity. As do we. As Jesus mentioned earlier in Luke chapter 8, It just kind of comes along and chokes out what he is seeking to do in us and through us. You've all seen those illustrations where if you were to take the population of the entire planet, bring it down to a village of 100 people, how various things would break out by percentages, by numbers of people. And so uh, if you were to think about in the global village, 100 people representing, you know, the nearly 7 billion Somebody that actually lived in a house, slept on a bed, put clothes in a closet, took food from a refrigerator, owns a computer, drives a car, has a savings account. I think I just described everybody in here, but maybe one. You lost the savings account somewhere. That's like five people in that global village of 100. We are the richest people on this planet. 
Over 50% on this planet live on $2 a day. And the outcome of that prosperity often is our lack of comprehension of the greatness of God. Our prosperity and our worries about our prosperity and our well-being and all this kind of stuff chokes out His goodness in us. And how does God respond to that lukewarmness? The text says... It makes him want to gag and just spit us out. Now, you know what one of the real clues about the state of our heart is? When we're reminded of this text that God gags on the lukewarm and wants to spit them out, some of us in the room immediately had this question come to my mind, to our mind. I wonder if you can be lukewarm and go to heaven. And friend, if that question occurred to you, you are in a sick place. You are in a dangerous place. Because for you, God is not the treasure. Something else is the treasure. Something else is more important. And you're willing to meet a minimum entrance requirement for heaven when all of the greatness and all of the goodness of God is available to you and at your disposal. To taste, to enjoy, to savor, to experience. Do the lukewarm go to heaven? Read the text. He said the lukewarm are pitiable. Pitiful. Poor. Bankrupt. Blind. Does that sound like people that have life in Christ? I once was blind. And now I'm blind. Doesn't quite sound like those that have the life. I uh, had a pastor tell a story not too long ago that I was captivated by. He was telling about doing a wedding in his church. And uh, one of the people that were being married was a long time, kind of a charter member of this uh, church that had been around for about 10, 12 years. And uh, she was a single mom and had a special needs daughter uh, who at this time was 28 years old but had a mental disability so that she was like a six-year-old girl. And this, this gal had been through some very trying, some very challenging times in her life. And yet, at the same time, when you started asking around, who do you think just really knows the joy of the Lord? Who really experiences the joy of the Lord? And most people would, would mention Gene's name. Well, along comes a guy, and he meets Gene, and they begin to develop a friendship, and then they begin to love one another, and they decide they want to get married. And so they approach this pastor, and they asked if he would perform their marriage, their wedding. And uh, he said, of course, and took them through some premarital sessions to talk about some issues. And uh, in one of those sessions, he shared, with their permission, uh, Gene began to uh, look at Rick and think about Rick and say, you know, I just can't believe this guy wants to marry me. 
I mean, you know, I'm 50-something. I don't have that stunning of a figure. You know, I've got these wrinkles. And she started, you know, the whole thing that women can do about their appearance. And Rick just interrupted her and said, listen, those wrinkles are dimples to me. I think you're gorgeous, and I want you in my life. So they come to the wedding day. And they're standing on the platform before all the witnesses, and they're saying their vows. And they're about to exchange their rings. And everybody is so happy for Jean that have known her for all these years. And many of them are already shedding a tear. That, that began the minute the processional happened because her 28-year-old daughter, April, was one of the flower girls. And so she's walking down the aisle and tossing the petals and so excited to, to be in the wedding party and wearing a pretty dress and so on. So they, they say the vows and they begin to exchange the rings. And then Rick interrupts the service to say, and I have one more ring to present. And nobody knew he was going to do this. This was a surprise. And he says, I also have a ring for April because I'm taking her into my heart also. And he started to go over to her to hand her a ring. And, of course, she's over here on the bride's side. And when she hears him say, I also have a ring for April. And remember, you have to imagine a 28-year-old woman who kind of carries herself about like a six-year-old. She leaps up on the platform <laughs> You have a ring for me. You have a ring for me. You have a ring for me. Oh, and she throws her arms around. I love you. I love you. I love you. Thank you for letting me be in your life. And now they're wanting to dry in the house. And the pastor went on to say what I have to say at this moment. I can't imagine a better picture of what it means To be taken with Jesus. To be taken by Jesus. You know the Bible has that analogy of where he considers those who are his followers, the church, like a bride. Who is messy and all messed up, all banged up, all wounded from, you know, how life has happened to us. And he still finds us desirable, still finds us beautiful, still finds us Something that he wants and desires for himself. And you know that the Bible also talks about God's disposition toward us like a father who wants us in his life, who wants to adopt us, who wants to make us his daughter or his son. And those, those pictures were just beautifully being painted in that one wedding moment. Friends, when you get it, how great he is, And out of all that there is in this universe, that he would pay any attention to you. That you would matter. And that he's intricately involved in all of the dimensions of your life. From the cell structure to all the personality stuff to all of the experiences that you have day by day for a lifetime. How? There's no way you can be lukewarm. You're like the guy in the Bible where it was said that the kingdom of his God is like a guy who finds a treasure out in a field. And he goes and he sells all that he has so that he can buy that field and thereby have the treasure that was hidden in that field. It's like the guy who said, I found a pearl of great price and I will sell all that I have so that I can have that pearl. And he liquidates all of his assets to have that treasure. When you get it, when you get it, 
How great, how good, how awesome, how loving, how redemptive, how purposeful he is. You're like a little girl that just says, I love you. I love you. I love you. Thank you for wanting me in your life. And you can't get over it because you've tasted and it's hot and it's delightful. And so in light of that, I just ask, where are you with that today? Will you ask God, reveal to me where I'm lukewarm, why I'm lukewarm? Would you dare pray and let God show you something in this moment? Listen, if what I have said is not true, don't worry about it. We're going to be through in just a minute. You can go and enjoy the rest of a holiday weekend. But if what I have said is true, friend, I would not leave this room until Jesus was the first and best passion of my heart. And if it's not that way, then God, show me why it's not that way. God, reveal something to me. What is it that I need to change? What needs to be different? Give me strength in my area of weakness. And would you dare pray, friend? God, do whatever it takes that I would be on fire for you. Would you dare pray that? Do whatever it takes. Whatever I allow to choke me out, deal with it. Address it. So that I'm on fire. So that I run hot for you. Let's pray. Maybe it would be helpful to you if you'd close your eyes or bow your head. I'm going to give you just a moment of silence. I'm not coming out to where you are. You're in a safe moment, in a safe place, just to consider God. Oh God, why am I lukewarm? Oh God. Would you do anything that it takes to ignite my heart so that it's on fire for you? This is your prayer moment. Just a moment.
All right, friend, if you wouldn't mind, just look this way for a moment. Uh, And I know some of you don't know me very well. But I can assure you that I've been praying for you this week. God knew who would be here for this moment. He knows what's going on in your life. He's great. And He's also good. He loves you. More than you can comprehend. You can't comprehend the universe. You can't comprehend His love. Why would there dare be anything that could compete with God being best and first in your life? Listen, it's my prayer that this day doesn't haunt you. That you don't get down the road sometime and you're still sideways with God. And this, this moment haunts you. Because of business that you did not do with God. I pray that this is a blessed, defining moment where like a child with special needs, you come to someone full of love and grace for you. And you burn hot on that for the rest of your life. Maybe you need to make a commitment to stuff you're going to get rid of, stuff you're going to let go, stuff that you're going to reprioritize. I would encourage you to take that card mentioned earlier and write that down. Let me pray for you about that. Maybe you would say, you know what? It comes to me this morning. I don't really have a relationship with Jesus. I've just been kind of a religious guy. Put on there. I want to have that relationship with him. I'll pray for you about that. I just plead with you, don't leave business as usual. This is also when we worship Him with our tithes and our offerings. Our ushers are going to come and receive the offerings and your connection card. God, we present commitments and gifts to you in Jesus' name. Amen.